0: For his age, he is wise
1: He's got his mother's eye There's gladness in his heart He's young and he's wild
0: My only prayer Is if I can't be there
1: Hello and welcome to episode 1321 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. There is plenty of baseball news to discuss, plenty of Major League Baseball news to discuss, but first, Estadio's team, the Caribes the Anzawatagi have defeated the Navigantes del Magallanes. In, uh, in the first round of the playoffs. First round of the playoffs? I don't know. Best of seven series anyway. The Caribes are going to the semifinal. The uh, Caribes came down from an 0-2 deficit in the best of seven series to knock out the Navigantes 7-4 in the decisive game six. That was a game where Luis Jimenez hit a decisive three-run home run to make up the 7-4 difference. But Williams Estadillo in the game went two for three. And in retaliation for the celebratory home run that put him on everybody's radar the other day, he was drilled in the hip in the top of the ninth inning. So, Williams Estadio got drilled in retaliation, no matter what you think about the unwritten rules. And maybe I should have expected this in my head. I never really thought about whether the unwritten rules had gone international. I always think of, like, the, the good old boy white pitcher who's, like, trying right. to exact his revenge. But clearly, that is not the case. They'll drill you anywhere where you stare at a home run. It's just the way of the world. So, this is a this is an argument that I guess we can have if this whether this should exist in the game. But this is something that we can... Uh, we can talk about it, but it's, it's about more than just Brian McCann. It's about more than just Major League Baseball. It's everywhere, but Williams Estadio was fine. and In fact, in the game, he even had a ridiculous hit where he yes, swung at yes, a pitch did. and dropped it in front of the right fielder. <laughs> the pitch was probably about two feet outside. He just kind of leaned and poked it, got a hit, made the third baseman laugh. It was just a another big day, less viral day, but another big day for Williams Estadio.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, this was how you're quote-unquote supposed to do it if you are plunking a guy, right? You're just supposed to hit him in a non-dangerous area where you have plenty of padding, particularly if you are Williams-Estadio. And so in that sense, it was unobjectionable. It wasn't like headhunting. I still think that's kind of a dangerous idea, the idea that there is anywhere you can safely hit someone, because I don't think pitchers' control is so pinpoint that they can always put it exactly where they want it to when we're talking about this body part instead of that body part. But it's funny, like, I always think of this stuff as so uncivilized and retrogressive and primitive, just drilling each other with these baseballs, it seems just so old-fashioned. And yet, when I saw William Testedio getting hit, I kind of wanted to charge the field. I kind of <laughs> wanted to like go down there and have his back and uh, have someone else hold me back. like I kind of I got it. I was so attached to As and so protective of him at this point that I felt like a, a faint echo, perhaps, of what an actual baseball player feels when his teammate is drilled, and you almost get this kind of tribal like they're attacking our group. We must respond and retaliate. I felt a, just a faint whiff of that. Don't come anywhere near our Williams. In fact, now that I'm watching this clip again, I retract what I said about how they went about this in a less dangerous way because in a previous at-bat in that game before he was actually hit, he got a ball up near his neck and head and he hit the deck. That one didn't actually hit him, I don't think, but that's even more dangerous than the one that did. How dare they endanger Estadio? This is bigger than your petty Winter League score settling. The man is a beloved international hero.
1: There is a, there's an article at MLB.com It's a Spanish language article that's uh, was published on Thursday, written by Ignacio Serrano. And my, my span I have seven years of Spanish in my history. I, I know some Spanish. I can read a lot of Spanish, but my baseball Spanish is not great. And I am, I am not above using Google Translate to try to understand a longer article. And so the, the Google Translated headline of the article is Williams Astadio determined to take his success in the LVBP to the Twins in 2019. On an inoffensive, perfectly fine headline highlighting the fact that Astadio has been so good in winter ball. But I would like to read to you a Google Translated paragraph Talking about Estadio. this is from, I think, about three-quarters of the way down in the article. This is all Google Translated Spanish. Spanish, I think, not that difficult of a language to Google Translate, but in any case, here we go. Quote, It is a unique case, counting all the levels in which he has played, from the minor leagues to the Twins, he has exhausted 3,238 turns and still does not receive 100 chocolates. In fact, he has been shot 99 times, less than 10, for every year he is playing professionally. How is that possible? So, (laughs) Williams-Estadio has not received 100 chocolates, but he has been shot about 10 times every year that he has been playing baseball. In this translated story, Williams-Estadio even more of... An improbable superhero than we already thought Yeah, by
0: the way, one other bit Of news, our guest on our Previous episode, Shannon Towie from NASA JPL, she has been Invited, I believe, to throw out The first pitch at a AAA Salt Lake Bees Angels Affiliate game this July on the 50th Anniversary of Apollo 11 Pretty cool, effectively wild bump You come on the podcast and (laughs) next thing You know, a high level minor league team Is uh, offering you a chance to throw out the first Pitch,
1: that's great Speaking of the effectively wild bump, our guest today will be the president, CEO, and founder of Fangraphs, David Appleman. And so if this gives him a bump, then that bump trickles down. You know how economics are supposed to work. And then we all get the benefit. So if that exists, we'll be talking to my boss and Ben's, I don't know, Secondary superior. I don't know what he is to you, but anyway, my boss and a person that Ben knows is going to be on the podcast later, but I guess we should talk about some Major League Baseball first. It isn't just about Williams Estadio. So we've had Mm -hmm. uh, a flurry of moves. We've had Jed Lowry signing with the Mets, we've had G.J. LeMahieu signing an identically Weird contract with an identically located team in New York, and we have had, I guess, now over the course of our interview with David Appleman, Russell Martin is going to the Dodgers, and Yasmani Grandal, maybe most significantly, has signed a one-year contract with the Brewers. What do you want to talk about first? Yeah, the the latest signs
0: of the free agent apocalypse, I guess. We, we already talked about the larger trends in spending earlier this week, so we don't have to rehash all of that. And I inserted a brief note about Grandal, which happened after our last episode, but before I actually posted it. So I guess we can start there because that was probably the most surprising. There's just a few surprises here, but in terms of... Well, the terms. That was not what we were expecting, and I'm sure not what Yasmani Grandal was expecting. I mean, this is a guy who, if you believe the framing stats, has been the best catcher in baseball over the past few years, or very close to it. And here he is settling for a one-year deal after some reporting that suggested that he had been in discussions at least with the Mets on a four-year deal maybe between 50 and 60 million and maybe that was declined maybe it fizzled for some reason the Mets went with Ramos and now Grandal ends up on this one-year contract granted he had turned down a qualifying offer so there is some draft pick compensation here and maybe he's figuring between that and between the stigma from the nlcs when he was chasing baseballs around ironically against the brewers maybe he thinks well i'll just go and i'll have a a good kind of pillow contract year in milwaukee and next year i won't have any draft pick costs associated with me so i can cash in then which you know hopefully will work out for him but he's a 30 year old catcher and you never know with catchers and it's certainly some risk to cash in then instead of now so how did we get here? I think you wrote a post to the effect of, I don't know how we got there, but uh,
1: I'm still yeah. asking you. <laughs> More or less. Now, I th- there's there's a lot that I don't know. I don't even know if the Brewers know how Grandal wound up getting to them for a year. And it's it's important to point out, it's not like it's a bad contract. He's getting $18.25 million, and he can go right back in the market. So even if you thought, oh, maybe Grandal will get $50 million, and he signed for $18.25 million, well, he will presumably get paid something in the years after this one, and he can make up that money. It's not terrible, it's just surprising, because there are teams out there who could use a good catcher, and again, statistically, Grandal has been very, very good. He's been one of the best offensive catchers. He's been one of the best defensive catchers. All these teams are just losing their minds over trying to trade for JT Realmuto when Yasmani Grandal is right there, only two years older. I know he's slower, but he's a better defensive catcher, and he seems statistically comparable. Now, when I saw the Grandal sign, my, my first... My first thought was, well, this, this is weird. I don't know what happened here. And within just a few minutes, I started receiving messages to the effect of, you know, what the thing is, that Grendahl is kind of like a huge asshole. And like a, he, he's not real good at developing relationships with his pitchers. And
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard that pitchers don't love working with him, despite what the stats say.
1: Yeah, back at the time of that horribly lopsided Matt Kemp trade with the padres and the dodgers that involved Grandall going to los angeles Grandall hadn't caught the padres three best pitchers the season before it was tyson ross andrew kashner and i don't know somebody else who's probably not good anymore and so there was there was this whole problem with grandal in san diego but then he went to los angeles and you you might have seen the quote i embedded in my article a quote from zach granke in april of 2015 that said something to the effect of i couldn't draw up a better catcher than he Monty Grandall and he was he was complimenting his receiving and his his game calling and how good he was at, at blocking pitches. And so Greinke at least was on board and I am given to understand now that Grandall has improved his ability to, to maintain and, and develop relationships with his pitchers. I think it's worth noting that he's been the starter with the Dodgers four years in a row. The Dodgers are no dummies. On the other hand, he has lost playing time in the playoffs to Austin Barnes, even though this year at least Barnes was not very good. So I think there are there are some least at least some yellow flags here. There are some reasons to think well, maybe Gandalf is a little worse than his numbers would suggest. But statistically, the indicators are so positive that he would have to be like I don't know, literally toxic. Like he would have to like emanate poison. I don't know. Was that the right word? He would he would <laughs> have to poison the people around him quite literally in order for him to actually not be a valuable baseball player. But anyway, he's going to the Brewers, a team that didn't really have a great catcher. Now they have a great catcher and they have him for a year. Really no market downside. I know there was the report that Grandall had turned down something like $60 million from the Mets. Ken Rosenthal has reported that as being almost true. And it, it, I don't know. It seems really hard for me to believe that that is exactly what actually happened. And I'm going to guess that there were conversations between Grandall and the Mets about a long-term deal. That would involve a lot of money, but I'm going to guess that it was never formally proposed to Grandall because I do not think he would have or could have passed that money down.
0: Yeah, right. And as for the Brewers, I mean, yeah, it's a huge upgrade for them over the catchers they would have had and the catchers they had last year. And it's it's, you know, the latest in a line of aggressive brewers moves. We talked about it last year, that they got Yellich, they got Kane. I mean, they had to give up real talent and money for those guys for Grendel. It's it's just almost like a no-brainer, of course, you would want to do this for that price, but it makes them better. It makes the NL Central more competitive. I, I think slightly before this you had been asked in a, a chat at Fangref's about how you thought the NL Central would shake out, right? And you didn't see the Brewers as the favorite necessarily. I don't know whether this changes things. All of these teams have been pretty aggressive, I guess, except the Cubs so far this offseason. But they were the best team in the National League by record last year to begin with. So it's hard to identify a lot of separation here.
1: Yeah, the NL Central is likely to be very, very tight. Uh, We have the Reds who are trying the Pirates try did their trying last summer when they got chris archer and Keon Aquila. so there are five teams who could be competitive i know the pirates have more to do and the reds have more to do but it, it seems like it should be tight the brewers are likely to be sort of underrated by the projections because they lean so heavily on their bullpen i also wrote for friday about jimmy nelson who is just like a complete unknown he could very genuinely he could be worth anywhere between like zero and five wins above replacement and i have no idea which it's going to be he's coming off what was termed a nearly complete shoulder reconstruction that he had in September 2017, which is bad, but the last time he pitched, he was very good. Again, just as I don't know if the Brewers know how Grandall got to them, I don't think even the Brewers are likely to know what Jimmy Nelson is going to do in 2019, but that could kind of be the whole difference. And if you look at the top, the probable top between the Cubs and the Brewers and the Cardinals, you've got Jimmy Nelson, Hugh Darvish, and Alex Reyes, three seemingly very good pitchers and i don't know if anyone has any idea what what they're going to do this coming season but that could be the entire race just right there all all this other Mm -hmm. work you're doing all this work around the edges all this work the brewers are doing to try to find a second baseman and that could be it it could just come down to those three pitchers
0: yeah well maybe they could get a second baseman from one of the three the mets have at this point (laughs) (laughs) the mets have like nothing but second baseman so yeah the mets signed jed lowry who's i mean one of the very best second baseman in baseball and they already have Robinson Cano who's one of the very best second basemen in baseball those guys are both in their mid-30s but still really productive and then they have Todd Frazier at third at least for now this is all provisional and then they have Jeff McNeil who seemingly doesn't have a position now after a pretty promising season this is like an entire infield full of former Brody Van Wagenen clients which is Very odd. I don't know how he can ever sort of escape the suspicion that 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 relationship is coloring this in some way. I mean, the the terms of the deal were fine for Jed Lowry, a a player of his caliber. But it it just kind of continues this Mets trend that they seem to just like acquire guys a lot of the time that don't really fit that well with the other guys they already have. They'll get players who play the same position as someone else who's already good. at. It just doesn't seem like they're the best at kind of optimally configuring their roster.
1: Yeah, this... One of the annoying things that the Dodgers have done lately is by just emphasizing versatility and having people play everywhere and having all these platoons, it just makes it a lot harder for people in our position to try to construct what a roster looks like and how it works on the fly. Maybe Brody Van Wagenen has a plan for how all of these pieces fit together. I don't know what that is. I don't know where Jeff McNeil goes. I don't know where J.D. Davis goes. I know people have talked about how McNeil is going to get time in the outfield now, but they have Brandon Nimmo and they have Michael Conforto. They have Keon Broxton and Juan Lagares, and eventually they might have Yohan Cespedes back. And so this, like, you're talking about a fifth outfielder in that case. But McNeil is now, I don't know, third on the depth chart at second base, and he's third or fourth on the depth chart at third base. And there's first base is kind of blocked depending on what Peter Alonso does. So it's it's hard to figure. Now, Jeff McNeil does have options. The Mets could always put him back in the minors and just kind of let wait to see what happens. You could, in theory, see some sort of—the Mets wanted to go bananas. They could trade Jeff McNeil and Peter Alonso and try to get something good. And you could even have said that would make sense as a starting point to trade for J.T. Realmuto. but then they got Wilson Ramos, so that doesn't really work. So I don't know what the Mets are— are going to do? I don't know what they're looking for. It is complicated, but you know what? That's also Thursday's news. Friday's news. Well, I should also say Brian Dozer. I didn't mention Brian Dozer. He signed with the Nationals oh, right. on Thursday. That's kind of boring. He's a bounce back candidate. Whatever. He's like Jed Lowry. If you gave him a bad year in front and then said, "Okay, yeah. now bounce back," right? But then yeah. Friday, DJ LeMahieu and the Yankees. Uh, I would mm-hmm. like to. I would like to put an idea in your head. Okay. I, I think I might write a little thing about this, but I don't know how. I don't know how much you've watched. DJ LeMayhew versus just observed him statistically, but at first glance and after uh, a second, a slightly longer glance, you know who DJ LeMayhew hits a whole lot like? And the answer is Derek Jeter. They're like Ooh. the same kind of guy hitting a right-handed line drive ground ball hitter who hits everything to right field, walk some, and seldom strikes out. The profiles are like shockingly similar uh, when I when I took a look earlier.
0: Huh. Yeah, that's an interesting comp. Well, I don't know what to make of Lemayhew. It sounds like the Yankees are thinking of using him as a multi-positional guy and kind of rotating him around the infield, some third, some second, maybe some first. And obviously they are missing Didi Gregorius for a while. And, you know, when they signed Troy Tulowitzki, we thought, well, that doesn't really affect the Manny Machado pursuit because Troy Tulowitzki is barely costing them anything anyway, and you can't really count on him to be healthy. But DJ Lemayhew. That's not nothing. Suddenly the infield picture is pretty full here. So this seems, I don't know if it precludes getting Machado, but probably does actually make it less likely. And as for LeMahieu himself, I'm kind of perplexed by how to evaluate him. I I know you wrote earlier in the offseason, and we may have talked about it, that it seems like there's maybe more in that bat, that he just kind of hits the ball hard, but... Doesn't really hit for a lot of power, but potentially could. Could be a candidate for a a swing change. But, you know, he's 30 and he doesn't have a history of hitting well. He just has like that one season where he hit well and it was kind of a a BABIP year maybe. And I think I just don't know whether you forecast that it's this kind of tricky discussion we're always talking about these days with changes you can make with players. We've certainly seen guys who are 30 or close to it suddenly transform themselves like the Justin Turner kind of transformation. But it's also difficult to count on that. So at minimum, I guess he's like an average player who is a really good defender.
1: By the time this goes up, maybe the Yankees will have made all of this obsolete. I don't know. But like if you tried to fit Manny Machado there, then I guess what? You would put Machado at third and then you either have to move and do hard at first or DH or you trade him. Mm-hmm. If you keep him, you put Enduhar at first or DH. Then I don't. It's hard to see where Gigi lemehu even plays anywhere because second base is going to be Gleyber Torres and shortstop will be Troy Tulowitzki and then Didi Gregorius. Third base would be Machado. So. I, I keep kind of wondering if there's a fit where the Yankees trade Miguel and Andujar to the Padres because the Padres need a third baseman, but that is Miguel and Andujar even an actual third baseman. And that's a question that I don't really know the answer to because he's been awfully bad there when he's yep. when he's played. So the Yankees still have some moves to make or, or I'll just put this out there, they don't. And you don't need to worry about what Manny Machado is going to do because the Yankees have, have uh, addressed their infield. So, whether Luke uh, Voit, 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 whether Luke Voit, whether Greg Bird, they're around. I don't know what they're going to be expected to do. Because DH is going to be a lot of Giancarlo Stanton, and I don't know. The Yankees have a complicated roster picture, but this is also a team that's probably going to win 100 games, so it's hard to be too upset.
0: Right. And as for Russell Martin to the Dodgers, what does Russell Martin have left? He's still a pretty good defensive catcher. I think his framing has more or less held up, but obviously is coming off a pretty rough year offensively.
1: Yep. He is uh he's 35, he's going into his age, 36 season. If you if you look at Martin, when I have run queries of like guys who hit the ball pretty hard or guys who have really good discipline still, I keep finding Russell Martin near the top of my leaderboards, and it kinda annoys me because I'll see him and then I'll think, well, this table isn't very good because Russell Martin isn't a good hitter anymore. So now I can't use this as like a as a, a positive Thing to point to, but Martin, even last year, his WRC Plus was 91, which is still better than average for still a catcher. Gets on base.
0: Yeah, 194 oh. batting average. You look at that and it's scary, but 338 on base for a catcher.
1: Yeah, but then on the other hand, you look at Russell Martin, and, and last year he swung at just 14% of pitches out of the strike zone. Like he's become unbelievably disciplined. Now, there's a difference between not swinging and having a Joey Votto like I, and Russell Martin is. Probably closer to just not swinging, but last year, a lot of the indicators suggest that Russell Martin is still probably kind of like a a league average hitter, and he caught 71 games last year, and, you know, is not so much of a a throwing guy, but he still has all of those leadership skills that people have always ascribed to him, and he can frame. So uh, I haven't seen yet how much of his one year left the Blue Jays are picking up, or what prospects the Dodgers are giving up to get him, but the Dodgers clearly needed a catcher, I thought, Martin or Francisco Cervelli made the most sense as sort of a stopgap until one of their two prospects is ready. And this doesn't preclude them from maybe making a JT Real trade if they wanted to trade Austin Barnes as part of it. So options remain, but at least the Dodgers now do have a catcher who is better than the 194 batting average that he just put up. Mm -hmm. Two more things I forgot to mention. So one, I, uh, I had forgotten. We have already joked about the White Sox getting Yonder Alonso and signing John Jay, associates of Manny Machado to try to lure him. But the Phillies also signed Manny Machado's longtime mentor, former Orioles third base coach Bobby Dickerson. So everybody is in on the (laughs) sign everyone hire everyone who isn't Manny Machado to try to get Manny Machado bandwagon. And also uh, something I think we both forgot to mention, I think we forgot to mention is the the possibility, the increasing possibility that A's first-round draft pick Kyler Murray is going to play football.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we talked about Kyler Murray with Eric Longenhagen during the winter meetings and at the time wasn't clear what would happen, whether he would try to be a two way player, whether he'd pick baseball, whether he'd pick football. I guess there hasn't been an official declaration, but it seems like he's leaning football and not shocking that he ended up picking one instead of the other i think from a baseball perspective maybe the most intriguing thing here is kind of hindsight and you know maybe foresight at the time by some people saying why did the a's use a high pick on a player like this and commit that money and you know particularly the the pick the opportunity to get talent without also getting some kind of guarantee that he would actually play baseball. Because if you draft a guy with the top pick and then he doesn't sign then you got a top pick the next year as compensation. But if you draft Kyler Murray with a high pick and he decides to play football, evidently the A's are just out of luck. So you basically just burned a draft pick. And obviously there was discussion at the time about whether Murray would actually end up playing baseball. So I think people are questioning why the A's took this risk.
1: I'm going to guess. So when the the A's uh, signed Murray... They were signing a guy who had been a sophomore quarterback at Oklahoma, and he had completed 18 of 21 passes for 359 yards. I'm going to guess that when the A's were like, oh, yeah, no, you can play football, they didn't expect him to be the best college football player in the world and go yes. on to win the Heisman Trophy. So, you know, it, the A's, they knew, I'm sure, that Kyler Murray was a good Talented quarterback in a in a good system, the good program. This is me talking about college football. Please don't point out that I'm being stupid. I think I'm <laughs> I think I'm towing the line here and being okay. But the A's probably didn't sign Colin Murray, thinking that if they gave him the opportunity to play football, that he would then become a possible or probable top five pick in the draft. They probably thought, oh, small quarterback, second or third round pick. He will probably lean to baseball in that case. So. Still a gamble clearly a gamble, but he exceeded the football expectations, and so now he might uh, fail to reach the baseball expectations would be, which would be uh, playing it at all. Mm-hmm.
0: Alright, I have one last note to A follow-up to an email we answered this week On our email episode We talked about this far-fetched hypothetical Where a batter runner would have to declare Which way he wants to run out of the box Basically if the bases are empty You could run to third base And then go clockwise Instead of running to first base And going counterclockwise And we talked about what some of the implications Of that would be Turns out there is some real-life precedent for this So Effectively Wild listener Raymond Chen has emailed us about a game called Playground Ball. Now, this is, I think, back in 1908 or so. This was uh, supposedly space was getting tight, cities were getting built up, it was harder to find big open spaces to play baseball. And so there was a variation of the game introduced called Playground Ball. And uh, the headline New York Times said Chicago introduces modified game of baseball for restricted areas. Good sport for schools may be played on vacant lots, schoolyard or confined spaces scoring by points instead of runs etc etc. So one of the things in playground ball was that the first batter to get on in an inning could run to either first base or third base. All following batters in that inning had to run in the same direction and uh, this playground ball eventually evolved into softball. After some period of experimentation, the YMCA, I guess, standardized this game playground ball into softball. So thanks to Raymond Chen for doing the, the research and the leg work there. But evidently a, an early proto form of softball had this rule where you could choose which way to run.
1: It had also been tweeted at us that what would likely happen is that as soon as the ball was hit and the batter would start to run the catcher would just yell out which base to throw to so the infielders yes. would not be surprised at all. Yeah,
0: good point, although that could be distracting. All right, so we will take a quick break and we'll be back to talk to your boss. <laughs>
1: joined now by someone who I'm a little surprised we haven't spoken with before, and maybe now that this is a Fangraphs-branded podcast, it feels a little weird to talk to the person who is in charge of Fangraphs, since we are not in a position to be critical at all. We all just bow down to President, Founder, and CEO David Appelman. But I, was, I thought it would be worth having a conversation with President, Founder, and CEO David Appelman of Fangraphs, because Fangraphs has become something of a behemoth within what is still a niche industry, but David, hello, first of all. How are you? Hi.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: We were obligated to because you threatened to (laughs) cancel the podcast and fire Jeff if we didn't finally have you on. So, Yeah. yeah, we just had to do it. First that that of didn't several of these that didn't actually happen, <laughs>
2: you, you know. Um, so, so I've actually only been on three FanGraphs podcasts ever, and and one of them didn't air. Um, the very first FanGraphs audio podcast, Carson and I recorded together, but we decided the quality was so poor that we just kind of like <laughs> shelved it. And then the, the audio quality or the quality of the conversation? Well, p- probably both, but definitely <laughs> the audio quality. And then he invited me back for the hundredth episode. And I think he did maybe, what, like another 600 episodes? No invites. So (laughs) (laughs) definitely not a, a requirement of employment to have me on the podcast.
1: So this is a good opportunity to get everything that you've had off your chest now that Carson never really gave you a good chance. I know I know from my own personal history of having been in the place where you live that you do have an, an article framed that's close to your front door, right? Could, uh, could you explain what that article is and, and the story that it tells?
2: Oh, sure. So I, I think it's in the office now, actually. And it was an interview that was done about fangraphs uh, for The Washington Post. And it's kind of like a profile of fangraphs and... A little bit of me, but I think mostly of Fangraphs.
1: And I guess as the follow-up, what is, in as few words as I guess you can manage, what is what is the origin of Fangraphs? What what was the the motivating factor at first? What did you think Fangraphs was was going to be when you began it?
2: So I started Fangraphs mostly for fantasy baseball reasons. <laughs> I was I was really into fantasy baseball. I. I started playing fantasy baseball in college and I, I was a fan as a kid, but I hadn't really had sort of lost interest in the game, maybe during high school or maybe even after the strike a little bit. And then one of my friends was like, hey, you want to play in a fantasy baseball league? And I was like, not really. <laughs> and he was like, well, we're just looking for like bodies. You can auto draft. And I said, OK, sure. And then I got really into it and I sort of discovered Sabermetrics and mostly through Ron Chandler's site at the time, Baseball HQ, which was a or still is a fantasy-focused sabermetric site. And I thought that, I don't know, I just thought the information on it could be presented better. And I sort of wanted my own system or my own tables and everything of how to sort everything. And I wanted it all to be automated as well. So yeah, I kind of found a stats provider and started up Fangraphs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, a year before that, I tried to start my own fantasy baseball service, but the pricing on buying stats was so crazy that it
0: wasn't or at least at that time, wasn't it wasn't realistic. So you could have said that you were trying to give a gift to the baseball community and provide us all with many hours of entertainment and enjoyment. But no, it was purely self-serving. You wanted to win your fantasy league, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, that that was that was mostly it. Also, if you like at the time, sites
2: like Baseball Reference, th- there wasn't a lot of sites you could go to for stats. I think Baseball Reference was only updating every year at the time. (laughs) So you were limited to ESPN, or I think the Hardball Times had had sort of started up around that same time. So that was an option, but your, your kind of daily advanced statistics were just not really available.
0: Yeah. So there's an alternate history, a darkest timeline where you end up working for a team and you take the skills that you had developed and you basically build fan graphs for a baseball team so that only, I don't know, 20 people get to use it instead of millions of people. So, how did you, first of all, develop the skills that you needed to create something like this from scratch? And two, How close did that come to happening? You actually doing this internally for a team? And why did it not end up happening? So the skills part, I used to work at America
2: Online. Mm -hmm. And I worked on big databases. At the time, they were considered really, really big databases. And you'd kind of put in your SQL query. And then you'd come back maybe the next day. And you'd get your results. And baseball data was really easy to work with after doing that. Because there just wasn't that much of it. So I learned a lot of the database skills at at that job, uh, I think I was there for four years before I left, uh, just to pursue fangraphs full time. And then just the coding skills. I'm always big into automation. And at AOL, I had automated decent portion of my job and it was mostly creating <laughs> <the> graphs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it was mostly creating like graphs, uh, and giant Excel packages for sort of executives and whatnot. And I just, when I got it, it was a big mess. And then I sort of turned it into a single button click. So I was kind of familiar with automating a lot of
0: graphs and just creating graphs. And yeah, that's basically where I learned this stuff. And then were you actively looking for team jobs or did you apply for any? Well, so I think in 2006, I think I was approached by the Yankees
2: to do their stats system or build out a front end for their stats work, and I think if I had gotten that job, I would have taken it. I I didn't get the job, so <laughs> yeah. Because if if you if you don't have a real career in baseball and you're just kind of working on your own stuff, and it's being seen by you know maybe you know a few hundred people or even a thousand people at the time, it doesn't seem enough. Like it doesn't seem like enough. And working for a team is a, is a huge step forward, and it's a really you know it's a big deal. That's where most people want to end up a lot of the time. So I was really no different. And I probably would have considered working for a team up until a certain point, probably until Fangraphs had full-time employees, because, you know, it, it just, it was kind of like this piece together thing, which wasn't really an industry necessity at the time. So
1: at what point did you, I mean, Fangraphs, of course, is, is named fan after baseball fans and graphs after graphs. And in the original days of Fangraphs, I remember I was a blogger then and I would look at the graphs and you would have like a strikeout rate per nine was like measured against league average. There's and, and ground ball rate. I remember it was, it was like industry changing to have batted ball information, just the basics way back in 2007, 2008, whenever it was. But at one point, did you start to envision that there was going to be like a, a role for For articles, editorial content on the site? And then, given what it is today, when did you think that that should escalate into something much more full?
2: Well, I think in 2008, when. So so I used to write for the site some back, I think in 2006, but I found writing very difficult. I don't know how either of you two do it every day. I don't know how anyone does it every day. It's kind of. This magical skill, I guess. I've automated uh, it. Actually, automated it. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. oh, <laughs> do Do we really have computers writing your articles, Jeff? Um. Anyway. No <laughs> um, so anyway, so I couldn't do it, and and I had there was actually a lull. I think in 2007 with me and Fangraphs, where I had I thought I had pushed it to maybe as far as I could by myself, and I had sort of lost a little bit of motivation there because it's it's really hard to just work on something completely by yourself and in somewhat isolation for a really long time with, without losing motivation. And, and so I put out a call for writers and in that group was Dave Cameron. And he, you know, was really instrumental, I think, in building the site in, into what it was today. So I think working with people really, really helps keep you motivated and and trying to push things along. I think another big influence, I think, in turning it from like just some fantasy site with a lot of graphs was, was the hardball times and also just the reception to the site. So I had sort of started working a little bit with Dave Studman and just like the crowd I was in was more sabermetric focused and more real baseball focused than fantasy baseball focused. And we just kind of... That's what people seem to be the most interested in. So that's kind of the direction we took it in. And then obviously with the writing, making it sort of more of a complete product,
0: I think, really took off when we got writers. And people still think of it as a stat site, and it is a stat site, but there is a lot of writing and way more writing than there ever was before. So other than just the enjoyment of getting to read all of the good writing... Economically speaking, traffic-wise, in what way does the writing drive the site and introduce people to the stats? How do those things work together? I mean, if fangraphs were just a baseball reference type site without such a big editorial component... Would it work financially, or is the writing just to to get eyeballs to the site and to explain how the stats work, and all of that? Is that just as important, or or more important as a component?
2: Well, I, I think they work hand in hand. So initially, I think a lot of the a lot of the articles were sort of stats explainer articles, where they were sort right. of intros to the stats uh, before they kind of became more real baseball articles. So. I don't know. I, th- I think they, they work, at least economically, you know, the traffic to sort of both sides is probably 50, 50, 50, 40, 60, maybe. So there's not really one component which is more important than the others. Obviously the stats drive sort of the engine of, they're, they're sort of the engine of the site. And they, I think without the stats, maybe the writing doesn't work quite as well, but also the writing, or I should say that the stats alone, are really not quite as complete either. So, yeah, they're they're, you know, two sides to the same coin. And I think yeah, I think that's what just kind of like makes it work. Also, the the other thing is over time, I think Fangraphs was thought of at least in my mind, I used to think of it as we're we're not a baseball stats site, we're a baseball site. And so there's room for us to do things which are a little bit outside of our wheelhouse, even though we still want to focus
0: or at least remain true to our sort of core stats focus as well. This may sound sort of obsequious, but how is it that Fangraphs works so well? (laughs) when, When you write about baseball and you write about baseball stats, you get to know all of these different sites where you can find this one piece of information or that piece of information. And here's how you get to this arcane leaderboard that no one else knows how to find. And here's how you export this little bit of info there, if you even can. And you have to get used to this site times out a lot. So you have to restrict it to this. And this site is kind of buggy. And you have to do this and that. And Fangraphs just works basically just better than everything else. And I thought this even before I was associated with Fangraphs and any professional And I'm always kind of amazed that I can just like export the whole database basically, like whenever. And I don't know how that works from a a data and bandwidth perspective, but it's just like, yeah, I'll just export every season from 1871 to 2018. And I'll add all these different stats in there. And it's this giant file. Probably you're hoping that not everyone who uses Fangraphs is doing that constantly. But (laughs) how does that work? What kind of like... Corners can you cut data-wise if there's a way to explain to actually make all of that usable?
2: Well, I mean, I think just as a developer, I'm kind of I'm kind of anal about everything, <laughs> so <laughs> and and I tend to be like very organized in terms of the database and and sort of the coding. And so while FanGraphs, at least maybe before Sean Dolinar got there, was not the most aesthetically of pleasing sites. I think we you know, what we had this kind of beige background for. For maybe a decade or something. <laughs> but I think with, I don't know, I'm, I'm very into like pixels being like very properly lined up and making sure it's fast. It, it wasn't, you know, I don't think it's, it's worked ever quite as well as you're describing it. <laughs> because a lot of people do end up having some issues with it. But a lot of that is ad related, which we have very little control over. So, yeah, I I don't know. I I mean one one thing that we do invest a lot in is is hardware. So, I think if you look at our hardware bills, our hardware bills probably are way more than some of our competitors out there in terms of speed. So, it allows our database to be a lot faster and allows for our web servers to be faster. At least if you're you know, not dealing with the ads. So.
1: The question Ben just asked was how does Fangraphs work so well? But this this question is <laughs> sort of phrased in the same way but with a different meaning because when when you created Fangraphs and when it started getting off the ground, you were entering into, I mean, this has always been and will always be a, a niche industry, but there was already an industry leader. There was already competition when Fangraphs came up and, I don't know, disrupted the whole industry or or whatever it is. But why, what do you think it is that's, made fangraph so successful in terms of its its staying power and its its continuous if not year over year growth and at least year over year stability.
0: Boy, we're asking the tough questions here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> well, first I think Fangraph started at about the right time. I think if you were to start another site of this sorts now it it would be way more difficult. I think the the web landscape then was considerably more sparse and more in flux than than it is at the moment. So one of it is just timing. I think the timing worked out really well. I think one thing is, is from a, from a stats perspective, we're more of an aggregator. So I would just kind of go out there and look at all the stats that were being developed, whether it was Tango Tiger or stuff at the Hardball Times or wherever. And I'd say, hey, that stuff's cool. Uh, maybe we can put it up. And people were really receptive to that and they wanted their stats up on the site. And so in that sense, fan graphs, we're not really quants. We're not really developing a lot of our own stats. So we kind of didn't really have any allegiance to anything in particular. We were just like, Hey, that's cool. Like, let's put it up. Mm-hmm. And I think, that allowed us to be a little more open source, kind of have a little more community acceptance in terms of what's on the site. Because the site, from a stats perspective, is very community built. We're not really telling people, hey, you should use this, you should use that. We're putting stuff up on the site, which people say, hey, I'm using this, like, can you make it easier for me to get to? So from that aspect, I think we're not particularly dogmatic about that. I I know a lot of like readers probably think we're like super dogmatic about like what we use but personally i'm really not like if, if people want to see it like that's
0: fine yeah so. yeah that's changed a lot i think at at baseball prospectus but when i got there even just as an intern maybe it's because it's a subscription-based site and so you have to provide a reason for people to pay for your site and not just go somewhere else but it was always hey we have these bp branded stats we need to use only the BP stats and kind of just ignore everything else that is happening around the internet. And I tried to change that during my time there. And I think it has changed very dramatically. But that was always kind of an issue because it becomes this insular thing where you're protecting your brand and engaging a little less with the community as a whole. But I think that Fangraphs has always been aggressive about saying, oh, this is cool data. We should just find a way to add this somehow. So How did you decide to go about acquiring, you know, sports info solutions or at the time baseball info solutions data or inside edge data, all this stuff that was proprietary and teams were using, but just wasn't really out there in the public sphere, at least in a way that you could just sort on a leaderboard? Well, initially baseball info solutions was I think they were the only company which
2: offered to sell me stats at a reasonable price. Mm -hmm. I originally went to Stats Inc. at the time and their pricing was pretty crazy back in 2005. (laughs) So, and then Baseball Info Solutions or Sports Info Solutions now, like we've worked together on sort of stats feeds and and whatnot for the past, what, I guess, 13, 14 years now. And I'm always sort of like gently prodding stats providers to say like, hey, like, can we get this? Can we get that? But a lot of times, like they start the stats for teams only, and then slowly it becomes more public or something they're willing to have out in the public. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think it really hurts unless they're, unless the stats provider is collecting something for a specific team and only selling it to that one team. I don't really think it hurts for it to be out in the public. Like they're not going to cancel a contract with a team just because data's on fan graphs, uh, Mm -hmm. at least generally not. So inside edge we've worked with for maybe like five years now, we're working a little more with stats these days. So I don't know. I think, um, I'm willing to just kind of like get data from from wherever and kind of piece it all together. I think you know the more data providers we have, the better. Quite frankly,
1: it was a, a few years ago that MLBAM introduced the uh, the Statcast concept. I believe in the early days, it was referred to as OMG FX uh, because it <laughs> promised to reveal everything about the game. And I remember there was a little bit of conversation. It was maybe it was taking place under the radar, under the surface of uh, of, of concern and how how worried were you around the time that if baseball wanted to they could effectively i don't know if it's put fangraphs out of business but just threaten the model by suddenly deciding to keep information private keep new information private and just supporting their own editorial workers on their own website ha huh. <laughs>
2: well uh well i mean i think that's let's put it this way fangraphs is is a small site and so if you know baseball or mlb or wanted to kind of put us out of business and throw, you know, like tons of resources at this stuff. I mean, that's certainly possible. I mean, that's kind of like the Google effect, right? Like if Google goes into the business you're in, you might be in trouble. But, you know, I think think there's lots of stuff we're doing, which like they're not necessarily going to go into. I think it's one thing I've learned over a lot of years of doing this is that there's room for multiple sites and one site isn't going to serve everyone's needs all the time. And it's just kind of like there's the pie's big enough for everyone, at least in this space. So I think it was a concern. And, you know, it definitely continues to be a concern, but I don't think it's, um, I'm not losing sleep over it.
0: And I'm sure you never envisioned this site becoming what it has when you just started it as a, a really humble thing with a tiny staff or no staff at all at first. But what was your goal once it did become a larger entity? Were you thinking, I'm going to build this up into an attractive acquisition and ESPN will come along and buy Fangraphs and it will be part of some giant media company? Or were you thinking, I really like running this site and this is kind of like a labor of love and we'll just keep doing it and see what happens? Well, so even when I started Fangraphs, I I wanted it to be a business because when I worked at
2: AOL, I was working in dial-up stats, which were... Not going to be a thing forever, <laughs> um, even though I guess some people still have dial-up service. Uh, but I don't think there's like giant departments that are dedicated to like analyzing dial-up stats anymore. So it was it was in, like from day one, Fangraphs was incorporated, and I hoped it could become some sort of business. I didn't really at the time see it. I, I didn't see it becoming really a media company which I think we're closer to a media company than we are just kind of like a website or a data provider of sorts. So I don't know for a lot of years, I was maybe interested in making it an acquisition target because you know, that's, that's like what you do when you start a company, you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe someone will buy this someday. So, (laughs) um, and, and also like, given that it was very small, it helps to have some, you know, bigger weight behind you as sort of a small company. But I think, I don't know. I, I really enjoy running fan I, I, you know, I, I really enjoy my day to day and everything. So, you know, I'm not itching to sell it or anything, you know, if, if someone wants to come along with like, you know, some,
0: you know, everything's doable for a price, I guess. I mean, so. The valuation of Effectively Wild alone, just mind boggling. Yeah. Well, I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> <Awkward> pause. <laughs> right.
1: So given that, in your own words, Fangraphs is, is closest or closer to being a media company now, how much attention are you paying to the the broader media landscape, maybe the specific sports or baseball media landscape? Obviously, the maybe a company like The Athletic has come up and provided opportunities, but by and large, this is not a great time to be trying to run an internet media business. So how how in touch do you remain with what the trends are in the broader landscape and and how sensitive do you think Fangraphs is or isn't to the uh to what seems to be the the constant downward pressure
2: yeah i mean i i keep up with what's going on in baseball media pretty well i mean i think a lot of the big media companies seem to be moving a little bit away from baseball but you know that that's not such a bad thing for us i i think if it's kind of a double-edged sword because if the big, bigger media companies aren't paying as much attention to baseball, then there's just like generally less baseball out there in the world or, you know, in the public consciousness. But the people who really want baseball content, they know where to get it anyway. And so I think it, it allows us to sort of hire better people and just be more of the place to go for baseball content, I think. But I don't know. I think media is going to continue to be sort of a tough space for a while. I think the ad landscape or, or sort of the ad revenue landscape is is not good. I think something is going to have to change there. And that's not something which like I'm personally going to solve. I think the big players in the industries like Google and Facebook and all the sort of larger ad networks are just going to have to come to some sort of agreement on how ads are dealt with. Because, I mean, the experience is not great at times. And, and also, I think the revenue is also sort of on the decline there a little bit as well. So I don't know. I mean, as time has gone on, people are or people seem to be more willing to pay for content. Uh, FanGraphs doesn't have any plans of becoming a pay site, but we certainly have our membership, and I think that's something which is going to become more and more important for us. So I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see what the what happens at the at the Athletic. I mean, that's kind of an interesting an interesting venture and they've certainly gotten a lot of money and i think if they can if they can succeed in in becoming profitable and and generating enough subscriptions i mean that's you know they're golden they can do whatever they want at that point uh, they're you know they're like another espn or another tv company essentially where you know the money's just coming in and they don't have to really worry about sustainability because they have so many subscriptions but and you know they're not beholden to the, the ad networks either, but I mean, you know, we'll see. We, you know, you just don't know if that's going to work. So,
1: given that you know, if if anybody's budgeting their own their own money, then they have only so much they can spend on recreation or or entertainment. There's a there's only so much to go around, and I would, would imagine that it works pretty similarly with with free time. graphs if for anyone who's ever written for it, a media outlet online, you know that the, the peak hours to write and to publish are between like 8 and 5 Eastern time because we exist to fill people's time when they're not working. And so w- we are a company that hopes that people who are at work don't work and then use their free time to, to read fan graphs. <laughs> now, there is a... If there's one area in media that's presumably not struggling and that seems to be, if anything, hiring and expanding. It's political media. I don't know if you're aware, but there was an event that happened a few Novembers ago. Something happened. And there's a lot of interest in in what's going on in American government. Maybe this is too too much of a reach to detect, but have you noticed any sort of decline in traffic or maybe slowing of growth as people might be spending just as much free time reading articles on the Internet, but maybe fewer about baseball.
2: So it in 2017 I think that was definitely the case. I think 2017 was not a good year for sports media or sports <laughs> at all cuz I don't think anyone was really that wasn't anyone's focus. I think in 2018 there was maybe a little bit of political fatigue and people just wanted to think about something else for a second. So I don't know, 2018 was was a decent year for us in terms of growth. 2017 was kind of like very flat. So yeah, I don't don't know. I, I think people can, I think people's attention span for certain things, especially things which are not enjoyable, per se, are is is kind of limited
0: So yeah I don't think that election Was good for sports media at all <laughs> Well What about another piece of uh, Political news or legislation Gambling legalization Is that something you think about Much in terms of the industry And Fangrash specifically I mean you have MLB doing deals With MGM now clearly It seems like there's going to be More and more data being applied Toward gambling and betting and Wagering, and we're going to be seeing that everywhere. So, as a stat site, I guess there are some obvious ways in which that could be applied toward that. But I wonder how much you've considered that. We have a couple of ideas and sort of how, or, or a couple
2: things that we were thinking of doing. But one thing which I want to make sure we don't do is become sort of a tout site, yeah, or anything of that ilk. We're not going to like sell projections or sell you know, picks or anything. I think all that stuff is quite frankly, pretty scummy. So um I think there's been a lot of, sort of documentaries and reporting on just how scummy it is. So I think we want to stay pretty far away from all that. I mean, a lot of gamblers use fangraphs as a tool anyway. So we're, I think we're, you know, positioned okay for that. Are we going to do anything sort of proactive in that arena? I think yet to be seen. I think we can we can kind of coexist or be part of a gambler's tool set without 100% catering to gamblers. It's kind of a uh, a little bit of a gray area for us, I think.
1: So I, I know what I do during my, my average day. I'll write today. I chatted and do this podcast. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I
2: mean, I, I certainly spend time on the phone. I'm talking to, uh, I spend a decent amount of time on the phone with Meg these days, just chatting about editorial stuff and and ideas and, and whatnot. So Fangraphs has like a, a lot of backend stuff, whether it's like maintenance on the database or maintenance on the servers. I've actually spent way too much of my time the past couple of years dealing with like server stuff and making sure the site's not like crashing and it's like running okay. So... I'm trying to get out of that business. It's not that much fun. So we actually did a big migration just this week, which hopefully gets me out of doing some of like the, what I like to call plumbing. And so I I just don't want to be doing that anymore. Uh, I'd rather like build cool tools for people or be working on like getting Sean like better data sets to build. So he can build cool tools for people. So I also like, uh, I guess I do like all the, finances and stuff at fangraphs so that takes up a decent amount of my time yeah there's just like a lot of like random stuff you have to do to like run a business which isn't really necessarily glamorous but it's just kind of like it's got to be
0: done so i end up doing a lot of that So because this has been built into a successful business, there are people and teams trying to poach your people, and it happens fairly regularly, and obviously this happened at BP before you, and it's just a reality of the industry when you get people who do good work. A lot of them get hired to go do it for someone else where none of us get to read it. So how do you approach well, both trying to keep people and then trying to replace people and being proactive about responding to people departing.
2: Well, first, I mean, we've had up until I think last year, we
0: had really great
2: retention at FanGraphs. I mean, it was, it was kind of incredible to, to keep the same group together for, for so long. But yeah, I mean, you know, nothing lasts forever. And so, I, I mean, in terms of hiring, I'm very involved in hiring. It's something I I actually kind of enjoy. I I enjoy hiring. So it's not really, at least it's something I like doing. (laughs) I think in terms of, in terms of teams taking writers and and staff, I mean, it's going to happen. And over this past year, I've kind of gotten more used to it and more sort of just kind of like, like, hey, you know, this is something we need to prepare for. So I think having a really deep bench at Fangraphs is something which I think would be nice to have. I mean, Uh, we're we're actually about to to go on a big hiring spree so yeah i think well i don't know when this podcast is being posted but maybe slightly after that we'll have wanted ads up for for various positions and so we're just going to try and continue to find new talent and give people chances to write i think that's that's something which fangraphs can be really good at is being a place where people can sort of develop their voice and and become a better writer and build an audience for themselves. And so I think that's a place we want to continue to try and be and and do a better job of being that place where people can do that. So that's that's kind of, I think, editorially a big focus in the next
0: year. One advantage, I think, is that you're the guy doing all the back-end stuff and the database work, so if you don't leave, things will kind of keep running, which was an issue at Baseball Prospectus because, you know, Keith Woolner would go work for the Indians or Colin Wires would go work for the Astros. And it's like, how do we find this thing? Where How does the site work? Who's doing the projection system? It was like all the really core essential stuff was being done by people who were being taken by teams, whereas as long as you resist that temptation... Then the site can kind of keep running day to day, at least in some capacity.
2: yeah, I, I mean, i'm I'm not going anywhere. So you know, <laughs> at least the database will still work.
1: <laughs> so Dave Cameron is one employee who went to work for a team, and he was, of course, uh, I think your first full time hire, Carson he went to work for a team. He was maybe your second full-time hire. Third recent employee who's gone to work for a team is is August Fagerstrom. And he followed a different trajectory because August was on, he was a full-time hire for, I forget whether it was a year or two, but he first came along. He was discovered, if you will, through Fangraphs' community blog. And I would imagine that you would say if someone wanted to write for Fangraphs or to get a little exposure that the community blog would be a good place to put your writing, to put your ideas. Do Do you think that that is one of the more underrated features of the website? Because it's been around for a while, but it's seldom discussed. But having been an editor of the community blog for a while before, I know that it is it remains active and popular with people who are trying to submit things on the regular.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the community blog is pretty valuable. I mean, a lot of people read the community blog. You'd be surprised who, who reads the community blog within the baseball industry. So it's definitely a place to get eyes on your work if if that's something you're interested in. Yeah, and it's also kind of unique in that we we pick and choose what goes up there, or well, you know, one person on staff picks and chooses what goes up there, and so it's not the quality level of that blog is maybe a little higher than just a bunch of random people posting random stuff. So (laughs) we try and keep the quality level pretty decent. I don't know. We we actually just uh, have a new editor of it, Dylan Higgins, and and so it's kind of starting up again and i hope people contribute to it and i wouldn't be surprised if we we found you know new new regular contributors through that in the future i know there's been like some some people post really kind of wonkish
0: advanced stats work in there and i'm always pretty
2: impressed on yeah.
0: occasion Well, that's what I was going to ask about next and maybe last is the quality of baseball analysis in the public sphere because I think the quality of baseball writing is better than ever. I think there are just more people doing it, a a broader cross-section of people doing it and just more of it. But in terms of cutting-edge sabermetric research – A lot of that's kind of tough because there's so much proprietary information. We can't see all the StatCast stuff. Teams have all of this internal information that we can't access. And of course, once you do some innovative work in the public, then you get hired almost immediately. So do you find that it's more difficult to get that kind of writing or analysis specifically?
2: Well, so that that type of writing, I think, is, is trickier to get on a consistent basis from any one person it's that's like a being a very stil- skilled analyst and also being a good writer is kind of like a Venn diagram which doesn't <laughs> really like yeah. have much crossover <laughs> so um you know finding someone who's able to both be a really good writer and do the analysis is just you know it's rare a, a lot of times you'll have really great analysts who will write a couple pieces and then will you know, run out of ideas or whatnot. And so, I don't know, like, if you're a good analyst, you're probably, I mean, your career path is probably more viable on the major league team side than it is on the writing side. Because, you know, you do have to write every day, unless you develop that that robot, which does it for you. <laughs> so um, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping we can we can find some regular contributors who have really sort of you know top-notch analytic skills. Um, but sometimes it can be, it can be really. It's
1: not so easy. <laughs> and then, like three weeks later, you would have to replace that person uh, after that person <laughs> right. has been hired by a baseball team. So the last the last thing, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to ask you is I know where things stand today. We're coming up. We're only about a month away from spring training, and we have all of the numbers that we have on the site. But are there any sort of upcoming new statistics or metrics that are going to be available on the site anything in the works, or are things uh, currently kind of at a at a high but static plateau?
2: Well, the one thing which I can say for sure is coming to the site this season is college data. Mm. So we'll have we'll have college baseball data in theory, probably for the start of that season. I think that's the only thing. Which I'm going to promise. <laughs> There's actually a, a big laundry list of sort of uh, of things we'd like to do, and some things that may or may not happen. So hopefully we have a lot more stuff coming. Um, but we'll definitely have college data, and we'll almost certainly have uh, you know a bunch of new interface improvements for the site as well, especially when it comes to the prospect. Uh, stuff that Kylie and Eric is are, are doing. So,
1: Well, I would like to thank you for spending some time coming on. It feels like this has been a long time overdue. I am surprised, as I already said, that we haven't done this before. Uh, it was also an easy interview to line up, which I really appreciate because you're just a text message away at all times. And so, uh, David Appleman, I can promise you that this podcast will be published on your website within the next several hours.
2: <laughs> well, well, thanks for having me. Uh, what, what episode number is this? This is... <laughs> 1321. 1321. Okay, so... Y- Have me back at 2,600 or something. (laughs) Okay.
1: Thanks guys Thank you very much
0: All right So that will do it For today and this week Thanks very much for listening You know I was remiss In not mentioning On our previous episode With Shannon Brody Van Wagenen's Wife's stepfather Was Neil Armstrong We were talking about Brody and the Mets With someone who works At NASA JPL Probably should have come up That makes him An even more interesting hire You can support the podcast Make sure there are Many more weeks to come By going to Patreon At patreon.com Slash effectively wild David Appleman is a man Of many virtues But he does not pay me For this podcast you do so sign up pledge some small monthly amount keep the podcast going as have the following five listeners harris udin nick bentley stefan lund nick Koss and Stephen Wade. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please replenish our mailbag. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastoffangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Thank you to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Doesn't just edit the community blog, folks. Also edits this podcast. So we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you early. Next week,
1: I have a number in my head. No, I don't know why it's there. When numbers get serious, you see their shape everywhere. Dividing them, multiplying, exchanging with ease. When times are mysterious.